Good morning. Would you open your Bibles to the book of James, uh, James chapter 3. We're going to be reading verses 13 through 18 uh, again. This, uh, just hold your place when you get there. Uh, we'll read it together in a couple minutes. Same text as last week. We'll be meditating on this, this text all month. And I'll have uh, outlines and discussion questions for community groups on our website um, but we're meditating on this text because we're earnestly pursuing what James talks about when he talks about the wisdom from above. And this, it's in, in opposition and contrast to the wisdom from below. And as I think about that contrast, it reminds me of how in Genesis, where we see a contrast between Babel and Bethel. Babel, a city where earth tries to reach heaven with a tower. And Bethel, a city where heaven came down to earth with a ladder. And this contrast is a contrast between worldly wisdom and the wisdom from above. James is teaching us that worldly wisdom is Babel, building its tower in selfish ambition. And the wisdom from above is Bethel, humbly receiving what comes down from the glorious opened heavens. And Jesus, he once called himself that ladder at Bethel. He is the one who bridged earth and heaven by coming down and making a way, by being the way. Jesus became wisdom to us. He is the wisdom from above. And, and we receive true wisdom in him. And because Jesus offers himself freely to everyone who would believe in him, then also that means that true wisdom is freely offered to us to whoever would ask for it in faith. That is what James teaches in the beginning of his book. He says at the beginning uh, uh, in chapter 1, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. So I'm taking James' call to pray for wisdom seriously. I'm praying this for myself and for our church, that our generous God would give wisdom, that we would be a church brimming with the wisdom from above, that we would be stable and pure rather than double-minded and unstable, and that our stability and purity would be a bulwark in this chaotic world, that our wisdom would be a sturdy stone amidst the crashing waves. So we're dwelling in this passage this month, understanding true wisdom, the wisdom of Bethel rather than Babel, the wisdom from above, the wisdom of Jesus. So would you listen as I read this passage now in James chapter 3? Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first 
pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere, and a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, make your name holy in this time and place. Holy Spirit, give us ears to hear, hearts to believe. O Jesus, speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. Amen. So as we contrast these two forms of wisdom, the wisdom from above, the wisdom from below, uh, that comparison is, is like the sun and the moon. Uh, the, the moon is the wisdom from below. The sun is the wisdom from above. The wisdom of the world is like the moon because any light it has is borrowed, refre- reflected from a lifeless world. Its light is weak and without any heat, and it beckons you to admire it more than what it illuminates. The sun, by contrast, is its own primary light, and it shines as, as it shines, it warms and wakes the world. It resists being looked at itself, but it helps us see everything else more clearly. And it brings life in the wake of its light. In our smallness and from our perspective, the sun and the moon, they look the same size. But with insight, we come to know that the sun is immeasurably larger. And we circle it while the moon simply circles us. And we only ever see one side of the moon. Did you know that? The way it orbits us, we only ever see one side like it has something to hide. And that other side, only darkness. But the sun shines on all sides and draws us to see all of them. It is pure in its power and in its purpose. It is first and foremost pure energy and fire that anything that would dilute its power or dampen its heat or dim its light is simply burned up. The wisdom from above, James tells us in verse 17, is first pure. He's saying the wisdom, that wisdom is first and foremost pure. In other words, this is of primary importance to the nature of the wisdom from above. So we need to ask then, what is purity? When we think of moral or spiritual purity, many of our minds are drawn to ideas like chastity. But sexual purity is only one application of purity. So let's back up and think about purity as a concept before applying it. Okay? So what does it mean for something other than humans to be pure? Right? Like for uh, pure water, for instance, is water that has no other chemicals dissolved into it and no other substances floating around in it. It's singularly water. It's unpolluted, undiluted. This is the language James uses when he talks about pure religion in chapter 1. If, in chapter 1, at the end of that of chapter, he says religion that is pure and undefiled undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. So to understand what James means by purity, we need to understand what it would mean to be polluted, or as James says, defiled and stained. And in that same text, he's already pointed us, hasn't he, to one source of this pollution, the world. But in 
Chapter 3, the text we've been looking at, he gives us two more. He, said, he tells us that the wisdom from below is earthly. There's the world again. He also says it's unspiritual and demonic. For centuries, Christians have recognized three enemies of the soul, a kind of unholy trinity made up of the world, the flesh, and the devil. As far as I know, that exact list with that exact language all bunched together like that is not in the New Testament, except right here is very, very close. The closest I can find. Earthly, unspiritual, demonic. Earthly, of course, talking about the world. Unspiritual, your translation might say natural. It's another way of talking about what the Apostle Paul calls the flesh. And demonic is identifying the evil spiritual realm, the leader of which is the devil. When he says earthly, unspiritual, demonic, he's talking about our three enemies of the world, the flesh, and the devil. James is saying if we are to be pure, we must be aware of the forces seeking to defile us and make us impure, recognizing that they can creep in and defile us and divide our hearts. We need to be careful, though, with this undefiled, unpolluted talk because people have always been making the subtle mistake of substituting negative ideas for positive ones. What I mean is like, and and when we do that, we can kind of miss the, the whole main point. One example is substituting the idea of unselfishness for love, right? So unselfishness is negative, love is positive, but unselfish puts the emphasis on giving up things yourself, Whereas love puts the emphasis on pursuing good for others. And we could do the same here. The negative idea of being uncontaminated can be substituted for the positive idea of purity. Purity is not simply putting up guardrails, but rather is a single-minded, wholehearted pursuit. It's the wrangling and training of all the wild horses of the heart into a team that pulls the chariot in a single direction. Soren Kierkegaard once said, purity of heart is to will one thing. And he was commenting on the text in James, in the next chapter of James, James chapter 4, verse 8, which says this, Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. So when James says, purify your hearts, you double-minded, he's showing that purity is the opposite of double-mindedness right? It's whole-mindedness. It's wholeheartedness toward God's glory to not be divided in our desires and in our pursuits between the world and God. Notice how James says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. That is the pursuit and the aim of purity. He is the one thing. But purity is not only the positive pursuit of God, though that's the main thing. It does involve that negative aspect, the, the the intentional fight against our enemies. And this is shown even in that passage because the verse right before that one says, right before he says, draw near to God, he says, resist the devil and he will flee from you. So we are to mount a resistance against our enemy. We have enemies because we are at war. I love how C.S. Lewis puts it in mere Christianity. He says, Christianity believes this universe is at war. But it does not think that it's a war between independent powers. It thinks it is a civil war, a rebellion, that we are living in a part of the universe occupied by the rebel. 
enemy-occupied territory. That is what this world is. Christianity is the story of how the rightful king has landed. You might say landed in disguise and is calling us to take part in a great campaign of sabotage. When you go to church, you are really listening in to the secret wireless from our friends. And that is why the enemy is so anxious to prevent us from going. So in order for us to mount our resistance, we need to recognize and understand our enemies. And I've come up with an analogy to help us understand how these three enemies work from reflecting on, on the passage in Ephesians 2, 2 through 3. Uh, but this metaphor has quite a few moving parts, so I'm going to need you all to follow along closely, okay? I'm sorry for you classical music lovers out there, because in this analogy, classical orchestral music represents evil. <laughs> and sin. So, classical music is sin, and the flesh is the orchestra. The flesh is an orchestra made up entirely of Johann Sebastian Bach's children, because he's one of the most famous composers, and he also fathered, in real life, over 20 children. So, this orchestra is composed entirely of Johann Sebastian Bach's children, and we've got his great music in our genes, and we've also practiced for years. And the flesh is that orchestra. And the devil is the conductor. He's not playing the instruments. He's not forcing us and blowing the wind, the air out of our mouths and moving our fingers. But he's encouraging. And he's leading. He's also orchestrating and uniting the different actions and sounds to make it more powerful, more meaningful, more significant. But being a conductor is only his side job. His full-time vocation is mayor. He is the mayor of the city of Vienna. Vienna, Austria, the capital and epicenter of classical music. Vienna represents the world with its dense history of classical music, its various concert halls, its various instrument makers, and its population eager and willing to make up the audience and at various symphonies approving and advancing the agenda of classical music however they can. Remember, classical music is sin. The flesh is the orchestra of box kids. The world is the city of Vienna. And the devil is the mayor of Vienna and the conductor of the orchestra. The orchestra of box kids, they love to play, and they're good at it. It's in their blood. But without the support of the city of Vienna... The orchestra would flounder and fail. Without audiences, it would still play. Of course it would. But they'd be, there would be far less motivation. And without the conductor, the orchestra would still play. Yeah. But not as efficiently or as robustly. So it's not the devil made me do it. No, you sinned. But you played to his leading. Marched to the beat of his drum. Here's how Jesus talked about the devil. The context is when Jesus was explaining that um, sin enslaves people, but the truth can set them free. And the Pharisees, the religious leaders, uh, they kind of pushed back and argued with him. They were talking about how they've always been free because they're children of Abraham, who is their father. But Jesus sees them having a different father than Abraham. He says, you're of your father, the devil. And your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there's no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character for he is a liar and the father of lies. 
So Jesus identified an evil spiritual mastermind behind the skewed and distorted religion of the Pharisees, the devil. He calls him a murderer. That's his aims, to destroy life. But what I'm more interested in right now are his means. How does he go about that? And what does Jesus say? Lies. Those are his weapons. Jesus says the devil does not stand in truth because there's no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. The main thing to see is that the devil's main weapons are lies. So our resistance against the devil is first and foremost the fight to free our minds from the captivity to lies by battling with the truth. So when Paul tells us to gear up and do battle against the schemes of the devil, the first piece of gear that he mentions is the belt of truth. And the last piece of gear that he mentions is the sword of the spear, which is the word of God, the truth. Truth must be first and last. The truth and really deeply believing it is how we wage war against the devil. So Paul says that our believing the truth, in other words, our faith, is like a shield A shield that extinguishes the flaming darts of the evil one. What are those flaming darts? Right? Lies. That's why the shield, that's why faith is like a shield. Because if we are believing the truth deeply, we won't be taken in by deceit. We have to acknowledge that there is a powerful spiritual force of evil after our hearts and minds. And the primary way that he goes about it is deception. And he's a master at it. He is devious and devoted to his task. His lies are nuanced and enticing. And when we think about the devil and the lies the devil tells me, I know that the tendency is for us to think about the big lies that groups are believing, that groups that we think we're not a part of. But know that Jesus, when he said that, was talking to the leaders of the conservative religious folks. And he said, their father is the father of lies. The devil is indiscriminate in his deception. His lies pervade all parties and all peoples. And he happily changes the lies to suit the context he wants to distort. So our call is the one that Peter gives us in his letter in chapter 5 of 1 Peter. He says, be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him. Firm in your faith. And the devil has an advantage, though, that we need to be aware of. Because it is really easy to get the orchestra to play classical music in Vienna. It's what everybody wants to hear. You'll be laughed at if you play anything else. It's the best kind of music, he says. Plus, it's, it's, it's your identity. It's who you are. You're box kid. You'll love it, and you're good at it. But our master is a composer of a whole different kind of music. And it's music that in many ways the city of Vienna is not going to like very much. But when he plays it, for those of us with ears to hear, it is the most beautiful sound that we have ever heard. And he empowers us to pl- with the ability to play along in glorious harmony. And this is why purity is so important to us, to be in harmony with our master's song. 
So Psalm 24 talks about purity like this. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord and who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart. Who does not lift up his soul to what is false. So having a pure heart is to not lift up your soul to what is false. To not give in to the lies of the devil. But instead, the psalm goes on a couple verses later to say, to seek the face of the God of Jacob. That is purity. Pursuing God rather than being double-minded and divided by lies. But remember, this deceitful conductor is also the mayor of Vienna, and he conducts this whole city to support his lies. This is the world. A while back, I was listening to an economist tell a true story that I think is a perfect picture of our battle against the influence of the world. In the 1970s, there was this large building, a complex of banquet halls, uh, called the Beverly Hills Supper Club, which is a weird name for it because it was outside of Cincinnati. And uh, one night in the biggest room, called the cabaret room, there were 1,200 guests seated for dinner and enjoying a show. Uh, A famous singer was scheduled to to come on in in just a little bit later that evening. Uh, But on the other side of the building, there was, unbeknownst to all those people, a fire. And it was spreading quickly and getting bigger and hotter as it made its way across this large complex to those 1,200 guests. And the fire department had already been called, but, but nobody in the cabaret room knew about it because the safety measures weren't up to snuff. There weren't any sprinklers or fire alarms. And the, but there was one brave young man named Walter Bailey, and he did his best. He was 18 years old, working as an assistant waiter. And he saw the fire, and... He found his supervisor, and he told him what was happening. But the supervisor just looked confused at Bailey, and so Bailey told him again. And the supervisor just kind of walked away. So, of course, Walter Bailey assumed that he was going to tell the people. So he went outside to leave the burning building and saw a line of 70 people lined up to get in to the cabaret room. And so he told them all and led them all to safety and saved their lives. But when he got back to the cabaret room, he came back, And he realized what he found was that nobody in the cabaret room had moved. The supervisor hadn't warned anyone. So Walter Bailey did something big, something he thought was going to cost him his job. Even though he suffered from stage fright, he walked up to the stage in the front of the room where the famous singer was about to perform, and he grabbed the microphone, and he pointed out three exits. He told everyone to calmly leave the room because there's a fire at the other end of the building, and then he left the stage. And all 1,200 people in that room heard his message. And almost all of them stayed right where they were. Why? Well, I assume they questioned who this kid was. They thought about how much they were enjoying their food that they paid money for and how much they were looking forward to this famous singer. He was about to come on. They didn't want to rush out if they didn't have to, right? And they had plenty of of incentive to look for reasons why they didn't have to. And they found those reasons in the other attendees, each sitting quite still in no hurry to leave. Don't judge, though. I mean, the last time you heard a fire alarm, did you just hop up to your feet and run out the building? I know I didn't. I looked around to see, is this, do I need to get out of here? In the Beverly Hills Supper Club, they did the same thing. They looked around. They took cues from one another but they didn't have time to spare. 
Some people moved because of the warning, but they, many, most of them, were slow to respond, lulled into complacency. They were companions in complacency. And about four minutes later, the power failed, the lights went out of the ballroom, toxic smoke rolled in as people struggled to get out alive. And how did Walter Bailey respond to that? Did he cross his arms judgmentally and say, I told you so? No, he repeatedly held his breath, went back in to drag as many people out as he could. 167 people died that night. If it weren't for Bailey, many more would have died. We are called to be Walter Bailey's in the midst of a Beverly Hills Supper Club world. But we are often less like Bailey and more like the diners in that cabaret room, taking cues from everybody else, caring more about our meal and our entertainment than concerned about the danger. And this is how how the the world infiltrates and destroys. It's why we are called to be a counterculture of Walter Bailey's who take the danger seriously, care enough to risk our jobs and our lives like he did, and, and to look to what we know is true rather than to the crowds around us. To speak and serve and sacrifice rather than scoff. The devil is the enemy of life, remember? He doesn't want people to live. He definitely doesn't want people to live forever. May we thwart him and his plans at every turn. But we do have to overcome another enemy. The enemy closest to us. The enemy within. What we call the flesh. In Romans 6-7, through the Apostle Paul explains what he means by living in the flesh. He refers to a body ruled by sin. In, by which we are enslaved to sin. Romans 6, 6, he says that. And, and, and that's kind of a good understanding of the flesh. The body and its desires under the power and dominion of sin and the curse. He says in Romans six twelve, Let not sin, therefore, reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. So, so here's another metaphor for flesh. Sorry, I've given you a lot of metaphors today. But here... It's, it's like a horse, and our renewed mind is the rider. Our emotions, our instincts, our cravings, our reactions are the horse. Those without wisdom are riding an unbroken horse. Those with wisdom are riding in harmony with the horse, directing it where they will. The horse is powerful, of course, it's still powerful, and it has a will, but it has been broken and trained, and is in the process of being further trained. So many people, so many people think that they are not held accountable in moments of frustration or temptation, that their emotional life happens beyond their control, things like anxiety or lust or anger. But to live like that is to forget about the rider altogether and just be a horse. Responding instinctively is something that we share with animals. But animals are incapable of wisdom. We ought to be far more than mere animals. We must cultivate wisdom. I mean, look at our text. The world thinks that things like jealousy, when James talks about jealousy and selfish ambition, the world thinks things like that are inevitable. Jealousy is just something that happens to you. 
Selfish ambition, I mean, everybody's always living for themselves, looking out for number one. That's just part of human nature. But no. The Bible teaches that's not human nature. That's fallen human nature. And there is a difference. Because there is a human who does not have that in his nature. One who knows no jealousy or selfish ambition. Who never gave in to the temptations of the world or the flesh or even the greatest temptations of the devil. But conquered them by taking all that their evil has ever accomplished and paying for it with his perfect life. And because of that sacrifice, we receive his Life, and you're united to him to share in his divine and perfect human nature that is, is not enslaved to the passions of sin or the flesh. In him we have freedom and the power to live a different kind of life. One day perfectly with him, but even now, though not perfectly, we can still live victoriously as overcomers, as conquerors, as what the Bible says, more than conquerors through him who loved us. Believing this and living this way, that's wisdom. It's the opposite. uh, The opposite of wisdom, right, is foolishness. And Psalm 14 tells us what foolishness is in its essence. The psalm begins by saying, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt and do abominable deeds. Notice he says, the fool says, in his heart there is no God. This isn't the intellectual atheism of our day. That didn't exist back then. Everybody believed that God was real. No, what he's talking about is practical atheism. Living as though God is not present or watching. Living as though he doesn't matter. Not believing in his power or his authority. That is foolishness. Wisdom is to believe that he is real. Really real. That he is present and powerful and trusting that and living like you believe it. Notice the psalm says fools are corrupt. Another way to say impure. Purity is to say in your heart there is a God. And in Jesus he is with me and for me through his spirit and to exclude every message to the contrary. And Jesus said, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. That is the aim and the pursuit of purity, the vision of God. To behold his glory and become whole. So let me end with that that truth I mentioned at the beginning, that purity is more positive than it is negative. Let me try to explain what I mean. In 2017, the U.S. had its first total solar eclipse in over 40 years. Do you remember it? Uh, we, you guys, y'all caught the eclipse here, but you weren't in the path of totality. Uh, which, so you missed the best part. Sorry about that. Totality is the term for the total totality, total covering of the sun by the moon. And trust me, it makes a difference. You don't think it does. It does. Nashville was in the path of totality, which is where I was living at the time. Every hotel in the city had been sold out for months because of that. My house was on a little park, which was packed with people. Our next door neighbors had a rooftop deck and they invited us over to watch. We bought those special sunglasses in preparation and it was hyped like crazy and it lived up to the hype. 
Totality lasted about a minute. But it was one of the greatest minutes of my life. It was the hottest part of the day, but the temperature dropped like a storm was coming. The birds and the insects were thrown off, so they started their nighttime calls. My favorite part was, there was what looked like a 360-degree sunset with a glowing maroon-colored horizon every direction you looked. The majority of the sky went dark enough that we could see some of the brightest stars. And the eclipse itself was this black hole in the middle of the sky with this shimmering halo of light around it. It was awe-inspiring, unlike anything else I've ever seen. Even Audrey, who was a bit skeptical about how amazing it would be, was utterly blown away. I'll never forget her big smile in that eerie dim light. And when that moment of totality struck, the people filling the park, they were overtaken with waves of oohs and ahs. If you want to hear people reacting to it, just look for clips on YouTube. It's actually really funny uh, when you're not inside the experience because any filters you have for the sounds you make, just go away. People swear and cry and moan. Don't watch those videos with kids. There's a whole group of people called Eclipse Chasers who spend incredible amounts of money and time traveling the world to view total solar eclipses, which happen about every 18 months or so somewhere in the world. The, the event is immersive, and it stands out in our busy, distracted times as one of those rare occasions where you can be entirely and truly in the moment. The only thing that matters is what you are witnessing. One eclipse chaser said, everything else around you doesn't matter. It's like you lose your sense of self. There's an emotional aspect that makes us feel so connected to humanity. We're just humans together on this earth in this vast universe. You see, the freedom of self-forgetfulness, the bliss of being fully present, the awe of being utterly captivated by beauty, the humility and the unity of being caught up in transcendence, this is the transforming work of beholding glory. It seems like such an experience is necessarily fleeting and ephemeral, but what if it's actually a snapshot of our truest selves. What if this kind of existence is what we were meant for? Who we really are meant to be? When we behold something, someone truly glorious, we are awestruck with wonder. Wonder is our natural response to glory, but rarely are we satisfied to just behold glory. See, true wonder humbles us and brings us to our knees and makes us want to be a part of it somehow. That, to take part in it, right? To be wrapped up in it. That's why, like, when an a, a athlete performs so well, we want to touch the trophy or wear the jersey. That's why whenever uh, we are by the Grand Canyon, we take a picture of ourselves next to it rather than just taking a picture of the Grand Canyon itself. It, beholding glory moves our hearts to desire participation with that glory. And here's another what if. What if there's a glory so great that it not only stirs our heart to share in it, but can actually transform our heart to become one with it. The good news is that such a glory exists. And God invites us into that far greater glory. You see, what happens to those people when they behold the total solar eclipse is that for a moment, they're on a trajectory towards a kind of purity. 
being holy and completely immersed in something bigger than themselves that makes them truer and better versions of themselves. The eclipse chaser I I quoted a minute ago also says, she regularly says that she believes the world would be a better place if everyone could see a total solar eclipse. And while I believe that's true for a moment, I don't think it would last. What the eclipse chaser is getting at is what the philosopher Simone Weil described as the radical decentering upon the side of beauty, where we give up our imaginary position as, as center. And this is a step in the right direction, but we don't just need to be decentered, do we? We need to be recentered. We need a radical recentering upon one who is infinitely greater than ourselves. The glorious God who made us for himself and gave himself to remake us after our fall. He must be at the center to find restoration and integration for our souls so that we can be pure rather than double-minded. Jesus invites you into the purity of wisdom this morning. Look to him and be wise. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, make us pure. This is our prayer. The purity of beholding your glory and becoming whole. The purity of being undefiled and unstained by the world. Of being undeceived by the devil. Of being unmastered by the flesh. But instead being wholly yours believing your truth with renewed minds and presenting our members to you as instruments for righteousness. This comes through the wisdom from above, and so we ask now in faith for that wisdom, knowing that you give generously to all without reproach. We pray in your Son's name. Amen.